We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And um, our passage this morning, it's kind of like as if you've been with us for a while, you're going to look at it and you're going to go, I-, I think Paul's already talked about this, so is he just trying to reiterate a really important point or is he kind of like old people, just forget what he just said and repeats himself? Or what's he doing? And, and the whole thing that he's really working at and what he wants us to understand is that the ideas that we have, he wants to bring them to light so we get a proper perspective on what he's, what he's saying. He's kind of breaking it down just a little bit more for us. And so that's kind of where he's going to go. And it's, he's talking kind of on some extremes here maybe, as you might think about it. But we live in a world of extremes. In our political parties, we have the extreme liberals who say that all the things that we have held near and dear to our hearts over the centuries are like an anchor tied around our neck and it's thrown at the bottom of the ocean and it's going to keep us from moving progressively where we really need to go to. On the other side, the extreme conservatives are saying that that. The, we're going to be going so far left and there are no guardrails set up. There's nothing to keep us in line. But what we're going to do is we're going to drive our um, country car off the cliff. It's going to kill our families, our children, ourselves. We're going to decimate this country and there's not going to be a really good country for our grandkids to live in. But the political situation isn't the only ones that have extremes. We have other extremes out there. We have extreme views on, and practices on environment or in education, on race issues and sexuality. We have extreme um, views on relationships and religion or on spirituality. We even have extreme views on food. I was telling um, Sarah's parents who are here and family are here, and it's great to have you here. We're glad you're with us today that um, in Wyoming, a vegetarian is someone who's a bad hunter. <laughs> and, but there are those extremes on all around us. And so what do we do with all that stuff? With all of these ex- extremes, what do we do? Do we, do we just kind of flip a coin and pick a side and jump in and then just kind of get involved in it? Or do we do like a lot of people and just bury our heads in the sand and ignore it and hope it's just going to go away someday And it's like a bad dream, we're going to wake up and all of a sudden everything's going to be just fine. Everything's going to be great. Well, I don't think that either one of those two things is what we're supposed to do. What we need to do is we need to understand what God's Word has to say about it. Because that's where we settle our lives. We settle our lives on what God says and we believe Him because He's absolutely truthful in all things that He tells us. There's no, He's got no hidden agenda. His agenda is that He loves you desperately and wants your heart. He doesn't want you to be extreme in an area, in any area. And so this morning, uh, what Paul's speaking about, he's kind of speaking about this issue, but he's using it in the context of being single or married. And and so this morning, we're going to finish up on chapter 7. And we're going through verses 25 through 40. I'm going to start by reading verses 25 through 28. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. 
Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Congratulations, Sarah and Randy. And if your betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have trouble, worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. That's a little bit disconcerting, isn't it? Everybody's looking at each other that's married, and some of you are going like, yeah, that ain't no lie. Have you met my spouse? But that's not what he's saying. I'll get to that in a little bit. But what I want to point out is where Paul starts off in this. Because what he's saying, this is my observation on life from the perspective of a godly leader. And you know what? We lack a lot of that in our, in our world around us. We lack good perspective from godly leaders. That's why our country is in the mess that it's in. And, 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 but Paul here, he's saying, you know what? Uh, what I've got here is some really good advice that I want to give you. He's, he's encouraging his readers to take this advice seriously. And while setting aside Paul's advice is not a sin... It's really not going to do you a lot of good to set it aside. We need to take it seriously and really think about it. Paul indicates that while his advice may not apply the same way to all people at all times, he is saying that it is reliable counsel. And it seems clear that Paul's not just providing advice that will be used just in one situation. It, it can be applicable in a lot of different areas. And his counsel isn't that it's coming from You know, I just kind of was eating dinner and all of a sudden had this thought. And it wasn't given independently of divine enablement of the Holy Spirit. I really believe that he's so in tune with the Holy Spirit that as he has these thoughts, they may not be a directive from God directly, thus saith the Lord. But as we observe what's going on around us, God teaches us and shows us things that we can learn from other people. In our own lives. And that's what Paul's saying. This is really important stuff. And, and he's, he's a wise man. Even though he's never been married as far as we know. He can still give wise counsel on the subject. Because God's mercy has shown him how to do that. So let's not take his advice lightly. In, in these three verses Paul recommends singleness. In light of the cha- challenging circumstances of living in this world. Uh, verse 28, it's, there's the phrase that says, worldly trouble. Now, you guys, that's not talking about the trouble you have between you and your spouse. I, I want you to know that. It, it's talking about, and Paul might be referring to, and I think there's two different things. It's kind of an inclusive thing that he says here. Because part of it is, is that Jesus suffered while he walked on this planet. I mean, he suffered uh, betrayal. He suffered all kinds of different things, um, name-calling. People didn't believe who he was. He suffered when he went to the cross. I mean, there's this suffering, and and Paul actually tells us to rejoice in our sufferings. And so I think what he's doing there is kind of hinting at this, is that the worldly trouble is that we are going to have suffering in this world. And by the way, if you're a Christ follower, you might experience more than the guys that aren't. Because the guys that aren't Christ followers, they don't like you that much. Because you stand up for righteousness and holiness. And nobody wants to be reminded about that. So that's one thing that he's saying. The other thing is just kind of a general thing. Life is hard. Life is uphill. I mean, 
you can have the greatest intentions of what your work week is going to look like, how things are going to run in your home, how you're going to interact with your spouse when they come home from work and you come from home from work where you have the kids come in and you get that whole thing put together and in your mind, this is going to work out perfectly and then it all goes to Riverton in a handbasket. And you're wondering, what in the world just went wrong? That's life. That's what life does. But the thing about it is, is the grace of God empowers us to push beyond that with the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to live in the mire and the muck of this world. We don't have to get caught up in the minutiae of, of life experience. God calls us and says, I will lift you out of that and give you a different perspective, one that's going to help you to operate and function as I intended for you to do that. You know, when you get into a fight with your spouse, when you have words with your boss, when you're angry with your children, when you blow off, uh, you fly off the handle and you jump to conclusions, that is not God's best for you. That's not how he created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created perfectly. His perfect design didn't include any of the conflict and any of the stuff that goes on in your life. That's not what he had designed for you. He's got something better in mind for you. So seek him out, find out what it is, and then do your part in it. Don't point at your other person or the other people around you and go like, it's all your fault. No, it's not their fault. It's not your fault. And I'll, I'll get down to that in just a, a few minutes. You're going to find out in just a few, few minutes here. Because as, as we look at this trouble that comes along, it's interesting that word trouble can also be translated as tribulation. And what it really means is pressed together under pressure. That's what trouble is. Pressed together under pressure. Which is really an interesting description of a marriage relationship. Some of you are going, no, it's not. It's not that interesting. Right? So you have two people who are pressed together in the closest possible way, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. They are two very distinct individuals with different personalities, different temperaments, different wills, different histories, different struggles and difficulties. And they have brought that all to the marriage as baggage. Wow. And even as Christ followers we're still subject to those limitations and weaknesses of the flesh. And so you have two angry, selfish, dishonest, proud, forgetful, thoughtless people coming together in marriage, and we wonder why things go sideways. It's not who God made us to be. It's what happens when sin is never dealt with. We let that rule our life. And it's, it's, it's true, even of the best marriages, it's hard enough for a sinner to live by themselves, let alone adding another sinner to the situation. And you put those two separate constellations of problems together, and you have two people who are bound together in marriage, and the problems of sinful human nature are multiplied. Now, I, I want to warn you about something. A lot of people want to blame the devil for all the stuff that's going on in their home. Don't give him more credit than what he's, he's doing. 
In the Old Testament, God told us that our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? In other words, we've got this propensity just to do stuff to just make each other mad. We just poke the bear all the time. And sometimes we get so used to poking the bear that we forget that we're poking the bear until we get swatted up inside the head. And then we're going like, oh, why did I do that? What makes me do those things? So again, here Paul makes it clear that marriage is a legitimate option for single people. But he wants to spare us the unnecessary grief. Hence, it is good to thoughtfully consider the options of singleness. Single-minded singleness has its advantages. Let me just stop before I go on. If you're married, it's not an option for you right now. I just want to make that really clear. You, got, you might get, get a little confused, so it's not an option. But for those who, of you who are single, don't think that married life is going to make you happy. Don't think that marriage will solve your problems. Don't think that marriage will bring you closer to God. Don't think that marriage will make you a better person. Don't think that marriage will fulfill all of your dreams. It won't because it can't. It can't do that for you. And if you go in with that idea that that's what's going to happen, it ain't going to happen. You, you have kind of swallowed the blue pill thinking oh, everything, I get married as soon as I put a ring on the finger, we're going to live happily ever after. No, you're not. You're going to have to learn how to fight fair. You're going to have to learn what forgiveness is. You're going to have to learn how to be humble. You're going to have to learn how to be, instead of self-serving, a servant. That's what it means. Now, listen. Marriage is good and it's noble and it's holy and it's honorable. And God said that people should get married. But it's not the be-all to end all of life. I mean, that's the problem when we have movies, right, on TV. Because everybody, we watch them, and, and we're, it's, it's a romantic movie, and we see this couple, and they go through all the struggles of finally getting together. They get together, and, and back in the old days, they got married and lived happily ever after. Nowadays, they just move in and live happily ever after, I guess. But what we did is we swallowed the lie that once I got married, once I got with the right person, then my life is going to be complete. That's not the way it works. Changing your marital status doesn't guarantee a change in your happiness or your contentment or your satisfaction with life. Discontented singles aren't usually the best candidates for a happy marriage. So if you're single and you're grumpy, put on your happy pants, would you? You might find somebody then. You just never know. Matthew Henry, the great uh, contributor to commentaries, says that we should live with divine, we should live with holy indifference to the things of this world. Holy indifference. Which leads us, and it's going to flush it out in verses 29 through 31, which says this. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has come, has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as if they have none. And those who mourn, as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they are not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they have no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So let me hit something up real quick here. At the beginning of this, he says that, that the time has grown very short, and at the end of it, he says this present form of the world is passing away. Now, 
you could take that to mean that Paul's talking about the end time, that Jesus is coming back real soon, and that everything's coming back to a, a close real quickly. That's not what he's talking about. What he's referring to is, is that if you think back into Old Testament times before Jesus came, there was a, a segment of people called the Israelites who were looking for the Messiah to come. And when Jesus the Messiah came, he changed everything. It changed the trajectory of where this world is headed because that was the first advent. Because now we're waiting for the second advent to come. And so things, every day we live, it's getting closer to the time that Christ is going to come back. But it's not like he's saying the end time is right here, right now. He's saying it's just shortening things up every day. And, and, the, and when it says this present form of this world is passing away, really what he's talking about when you go back and you take a, a good look at what the Greek, Greek structure of the sentence is, it's more talking about um, a mask that's being worn, that's being removed, so we get to see what things really are like. So we're starting to get a better, clearer understanding of human personality, of, of the evilness and wickedness of man, uh, of where things are heading in our country and around the world. Because all the, the form of this world is passing away. All the layers and stuff of, that everybody is packed in to try and make things look better than what they are, are starting to come off. Things are starting to come unglued. Don't get discouraged by that. That's a good thing. Because that's when Jesus shows up, right in the middle of all that stuff. And we've got to be excited about that. So let's just carry on now with the rest of the stuff. Because what we have here is we have, out of this these verses, there are five things that I really want you to pick up on this. The first one is with regard to our intimate relationships. From now on, let those who have wives live as they as they had none. Some of you wives are going like, that's my husband. That's not what Paul's talking about. Okay? Let me explain it to you. These, in these verses, these, this one verse right here, particularly, you didn't hear that quoted at um, Sarah and Randy's wedding yesterday either. It's not very popular at weddings. All right? But... What it really means is to enjoy your marriage, but don't make your marriage the most important thing of your life. That's what Paul's saying. Number two, in regard to afflictions and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Do not be so overcome with grief that you act as if God doesn't care or that he doesn't have the last word on your issue. He does. With regard to pleasure, to those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. So don't get caught up in the joy so much so that you forget the, suf the sufferings right around the corner. Uh, I've said this a lot of times. You're either coming out from suffering, or you're in the middle of suffering, or you're one dumb move away from suffering. It, it, it's, a, it's the reality of the life we live in. And so don't get so caught up in joy that you're going like, Oh, everything's going to be good till I die. Not going to happen unless you're on your deathbed already. But in everything you do, don't forget about eternal realities. That's Paul's message. You're going to have rejoicing. You're going to have suffering. But keep it in perspective of eternal realities. Okay, now it goes on to say with regard to purchases, those who buy as though they had no goods. When you do make a purchase, 
be a wise steward with what God has given you. Don't spend carelessly on, on world's toys and trinkets. And what you do purchase, hold loosely. Be careful, lest the things you possess end up possessing you. Acknowledge that you're a steward of them, but always be ready because the master may ask for them back at any moment. It's not yours forever. And then with regard to all earthly concerns, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Use the world, enjoy the world, live in the world, work in the world, buy and sell in the world. But don't let the world rule your life. The message is clear and unmistakable. You won't be here forever. So enjoy life, live it to its full, take advantage of every moment, but don't indulge yourself so much so that you lose your focus on what really matters. That's covering those verses. We'll move on to 32 through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties, Paul says. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefits, not to lay any restraint upon you, or, but to promote good order and to secure your individual devotion to the Lord. So what Paul is, Paul is doing is here, he's acknowledging that par- marriage people really do have more to be concerned about than single people. You have your spouse to think about. You have your children to think about. And rightly so, because if, if you're not putting into them, especially your marriage, you will not find it to be a very happy marriage. You can't ignore it and it be a good place to be. And marriage requires immense sacrifice and time and energy. And Paul's point is is that marriage relationship can keep us from devoting ourselves more fully to Christ. For example, we must balance our devotion to our spouse and our children and God. Yet at the same time, (coughs) excuse me, be so consumed with God that every area of our life is as well in balance. There's a, it, it's, it's a balancing thing. And by the way, this is what and I'm going to... Some of you, I'm going to step on your toes. Others of you, I'm going to kick you in the shin. So notice, all right, just notice, I gave you fair warning that I'm going to say something that might be a little bit hurtful. Um, and if you want to send me an email, it's John Ekman at... <laughs> All right. The thing that I've noticed most recently over my last uh, probably 20 years of ministry is the excuse bucket is full. And the greatest excuses for not participating in God things, church is a God thing, serving, kids' church, youth, whatever, Wherever God's calling people to serve, here's the excuses that are abundantly used that I think that God goes like, oh, really? That one again? Well, I can't do that because I need to spend time with my wife. I need to be with my family. You don't understand. I haven't been with my family for eight hours, and I need to be with them. Okay. Listen, because you know 
that's the family card. You pull it out and trump it, and you go like, family's so important. I got to be with my family. Leave me alone, you mean pastor. Right? And, and that's what we do is we, trump, we throw out the family card. We throw out the spouse card because we think that those two things are far more important than what God has for you. And you miss out, we miss out on a lot of blessings because we're not keeping our priorities straight as to what God's calling us to do. Now, I'm not saying to neglect your family. I'm not saying, you know, forget about your wife because if you do that, you're going to have a really unhappy marriage. And if you forget about your kids, they're going to grow up to be brats and nobody's going to want to be around them. But it is talking about keeping your perspectives and your priorities right. And if your spouse is more important to you than God, if your children, your family is more important to you than God, then they've become your new God and that God will disappoint you every time. Did that hurt? Good. All right. Now remember, Paul has a lot to say in, in this chapter about staying in the condition in which you were called into this relationship with God. And so those who, you know, feel free to change their circumstances to be happy or to be spiritual really don't understand what it's like to be in a life with Christ. And I believe that the most happily married people are those who really were very happy when they weren't married. We sometimes expect way too much out of marriage and our, our earthly relationships. We want them to meet every aspect of our life, to make us content, to make us happy, to bring us joy, to, to, to meet all those needs that we have. And the problem is nobody can do that except God. He's calling us to be, our primary goal is not to be happy, but to be holy. That's God's calling on our lives. And when you're holy, guess what? It's the byproduct out of your life because it works like this. You're first of all, you're redeemed. And, and, and then your life turns around and things start to change and you start to experience holiness, which brings happiness. And out of that holy, happy life, then you start to worship God for who he really is. Those are, those are ways that God wants us to operate and live within our the context of how he's created us. Let's move on to verses 36 through 38. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is not a sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessary uh, necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So when he who marries, his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. There, there's this whole idea, and I don't know about you, I've heard it when I was a young adult. And I've heard my kids hear it from other people. So, honey, when are you going to find a good man and settle down? You ever going to get married? As if being single, you are incomplete. You don't function. You don't add. You don't bring value 
to the rest of the church body or to society because you're single. Well, that's not even true. We have painted this picture of single people that they're the others and we'll just make a little place for them over here and, and until they can finally find the right guy or the right gal and they get married, then we'll include them into the things that are important. That's not what God did. God says, come to me, all of you, all, you single or married. We all have the same gifts. We have the same abilities. We have the same sorrows, the same heartaches. We walk through life. We experience all the same things together. But when it comes to being married or single, it seems like we elevate being married over being single. Who's the greatest single person you know? Yeah, you can play the Jesus card now. Yeah. I mean, Jesus was absolutely fulfilled in all of his life. Why? Because he was so intimately connected with his father. I love single people. Because they'll do anything at a drop of a hat. So, Paul's basically saying, don't stay single and don't get married. In fact, don't do anything because anyone is telling you to do it. Why? Because when you succumb to social pressures, you're under necessity. And that is never a good place to make decisions. If you want to navigate the ropes of singleness and married life well, you're going to have to learn what it means to be free or find freedom from this. But you don't only need to have freedom from that. You need to have freedom from everyone else who is saying to you, get married or stay single. But it's also finding freedom from yourself, from your own insatiable desires. In verse 37, Paul says that we have to get our desires under control. Now, he's using married life as the example, but it's just not confined to marriage. We all have unhealthy desires that we put ahead of other things, particularly things with God or maybe with relationships with other people. We have these unhealthy desires and God's telling us, hey, you want to live a life that is really not only uh, fulfilling and meaningful, but is very pleasing to me. Let's work at getting this stuff under control. We all have them. Mine's pretty obvious. And, and you've got, got them too. And so what we need to do is we need to come to the place where we're asking God to help us to take care of these issues. If you're staying single because you, you want the freedom of love of your neighbors, you have a pretty good reason for being single, being able to go out and love those around you whenever you want to. But if you're doing it because you want to focus on your career or because you hate the thought of being obligated to someone else or thinking that maybe there's somebody better out there that might come along, then those are not good reasons to remain single. And if that describes you, you might be in a little bit of deep kimchi because in each case, you're not just out to get more for what you want. It's that you need to have your desires under control so you can receive more from God of what he's got for you. And on the other side of this coin, if you're looking to get married because you want to give yourself away, 
right here, perfect example, then you have a good reason for getting married. You know, giving yourself away to the other person means this. I am here for the rest of my life to serve your needs. I am not going to demand anything from you in return. I am here to love on you unconditionally. I am here to serve you, whatever that looks like. I am here to take care of you no matter what you look like, no matter how sick you get. That's why this whole thing for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and in health is incorporated into the wedding vows is because those are things that we're committing ourselves to and we're saying, I'm serving you in all of that. Why do we do that? Because the great bridegroom, Jesus, does that for his bride, the church. That's why we do it. What does Jesus look in return from you? What did he say? Hey, come and enjoy this relationship with me because I want something from you. You're going to give him something that he lacks? He's just saying, come on. Look, let's step into this love relationship. And after you step into it, all of a sudden you're going like, man, I love this guy so much, I'm going to do anything for him. That's what a marriage relationship is like. And that's where we get off track. And if you're you're getting married because you can't live without being married, because being single just kills you, you can't bear the thought of being alone, and when you are, you don't even know who you are anymore, then you don't have the desires of your life under control and you will absolutely crush your spouse because of that. No human being can bear that kind of weight that you're asking. No human can, can completely make you complete in any way. And they were never intended to do that. Only one person can do that. So both singleness and marriage are being unmasked for what they really are. Good, but not the ultimate thing and not everything. Randy and Sarah are going like, we just got married. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, Paul concludes this chapter on this section on marriage and singleness with these words, 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Not a good reason to kill your husband. (laughs) Yet, and there might be a good reason to kill your husband, but that's not the one. In my judgment, he goes on to say, she is happier if she remains as she is. And then Paul throws this little thing on the end, and I'll get to it in just a couple minutes here, but... And I think I, too, have the Spirit of God. Okay. (laughs) Now, what Paul wants to do is he's leaving this topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage with an emphasis on the two most important thoughts. Marriage is for life, and Christ followers should only marry Christ followers. Big deal right there. Married people and singles both need to come to grips with these points. Of course, he isn't dealing here with the three biblical exceptions. There are three biblical exceptions for getting out of a marriage. Sexual immorality, 
abuse and abandonment. It's in the Bible. And if you didn't know that, you need to start reading your Bible. Start in Genesis. Work your way to Revelation. You'll find it. He's envisioning the ideal circumstances here. He's saying you've lived together and you've lived a life that is just glorifying to God and you're out playing golf and your husband dropped over dead with a heart attack and you actually finished him off when you ran him over with the cart. (laughs) Bury him. And if you can stay single, stay single. You're going to find a lot of freedom in that. But if you need to get married... Marry another Christ follower. And I, I, I want to make this point really clear. It's not just important to marry someone who says, I believe in God. There's this relationship thing with Jesus that's really important. And if they don't love Jesus the way you love Jesus, you're going to have a contentious marriage. And it's not just marrying someone who loves Jesus. Because there are people who are staunch Calvinists and people who are staunch Arminianists. This one in free will, this one totally in the sovereignty of God. And you try and marry those things together and one's a bucket of gasoline and the other one's a match. (laughs) And it's not going to make for a great marriage. You need to be theologically compatible. You don't need to be physically compatible. God already took care of that. I still have the board back here if I need to draw a picture on that. (laughs) But what you do need to be is theologically compatible. Because you don't want to be arguing over little, every little thing out of the Bible. You're going to find, you're going like, I married a Christian, but it's the most miserable marriage ever. So be smart about it. All right. So... The truth is, there are many excellent reasons to get married. Companionship, children, a life spent together, growing. God uses them to sharpen us and to grow us and to help us. But on the same hand, there are excellent reasons not to get married. It's better not to marry than to marry a non-believer. It's better not to marry than to marry someone who will hinder your relationship with Christ or your service for him. It is very not better not to marry someone without the commitment to give completely of yourself to that person. It's better not to marry for the wrong marrying for the wrong motive. And it's better not to marry than to marry at all if you have the gift of celibacy. So last, Paul's last comment, it's a unique one. And he, he says here, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And it's kind of like, where did that come from? I mean, he just drops it in there, right? And, and you can kind of wonder, like, does he think he's not filled with the Holy Spirit? That he's empowered by the Holy Spirit? Is that kind of the thing he's saying here? No, that's not what he's saying at all. That is not his in, in, intention at all. What it means is that he believes he has the illumination of the Spirit of God on this topic. And I like that because he, he, Paul shows that he's, he, he's got humility and honesty. He was never arrogant about God's truth. He, when he had a word directly from the Lord, and by the way, he did, 
as seen in chapter 10 or uh, verse 10 of chapter 7. He made no qualms about sharing that it was coming from God and enforcing it. When he had opinions that were apostolic, like in verse 12 and verse 25 of this chapter, he gave them with conviction. But when he wasn't sure whether his ideas conformed to what the Spirit of God taught, he was willing to say so. Unfortunately, there are many times in ministry today where there are men and women who will always come and they will say, the Lord told me to tell you. God spoke to me out loud and told me. And if they say God told me to tell you something, you go, you know what? God usually tells me without having to have you. My intermediator is Jesus himself. He's the one that intermediates between me and the Father. I don't need you. Thank you. I love you, but go away. And, 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 and there are a lot of people out there today who are claiming the right that they have a word from the Lord and they are usually dogmatic about it. And a lot of times they're wrong, but they're never in doubt that they had the word. So beware of teachers who claim to have a direct pipeline from God. Now, I'm just going to wrap this up real quick. Um, Life is filled with distractions. And our life is filled with a lot of really good things. I'm going to say marriage is really good. Being single, when I was single, I had a great time being single. It was great. It was really good. We have good homes. We have good jobs. We have, most of the time, good spouses, or once in a while, a good spouse. We have good friends. We have a good church. We have good ministry. But the problem is, is when we let those things interfere, the good things come into our lives and get into the wrong place or the wrong position, we're, we're settling. Because what God has for us is great. It's not good. It's great. And what we do is we settle for good enough instead of the great things that God has for us. And so it's really important for us to understand the distractions that they're good, but they're not great. And that we, we put all of our eggs in one basket called the greatness of God. That's where we need to go. Now, I'm going to walk through these reflective questions with you right away. All right? Why did you get married? Or why do you want to get married? Why are you single? Or why do you want to stay single? What brings you your ultimate joy, satisfaction, and contentment? What is, it, what is distracting you from God? Your spouse, your family, your singleness, your career, your recreation? How do you need to reorder your life so that God stays as your top priority? And here's one I didn't put on there because I wanted to trick you a little bit. I always have, I need to, you know, I need to have the upper hand here. So here it is. Who's going to hold you accountable to your decision on making, changing your priorities? 
It's putting the rubber to the road, as it were. You can say, oh, I need to do this, and I need to do that, and I need to do this. These, these are some changes I need to be, that I need to make. But if you don't say them out loud and say to somebody, hey, here's some things that I have to change in my life, and will you check back with me in a week and see where I'm at on the process of starting to change? And would you continue to check up with me? I'm going to give you my list of things that I know God talked to me about changing, my priorities. Will you hold me accountable to this? Because that's really what we're here for, right? We're family, brothers and sisters. So, you know, let's live what God's called us to do. Amen? Our Father, we thank you that you care about us, whether we're single or married, whether we're engaged or disengaged, whether we are um, currently stepping into our relationship or we're stepping away from it. It doesn't matter. You love us all the same. You care deeply about each one of us. And what you desire from us is to make you our top priority. Not to let the distractions of this world, even though they're good, interfere with our relationship. And so where we have, forgive us. Where we need help, help us. And where we're weak, strengthen us. We thank you that you do that because of your great love for us. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.